Good morning. And welcome to Dialogue Sunday Study. Today, August 30, 2020. Today's study will be led by Andrea Radke Moss, focused on Helaman 7 to 12. I am Chris Kimball. I'm conducting from my home in Utah today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz, will be also participating or in the background making this program work. We are running today on our webinar format on Zoom and a live feed on Facebook. We are recording and we will post the recording as soon as it's available, usually this afternoon. For viewers on Zoom, there is a chat function which you can comment and ask questions and propose answers. We do record the chat session. We ask that you be considerate and thoughtful about how you use that chat. We will access and pay attention to the chat for the time when uh, questions and comments and, and answers can be uh, introduced in the lesson. Um, today, I want to make a special uh, note. I'll try to do this at the end as well, that uh, we, are, we will not have a a regular gospel study session next week, Labor Day weekend. We will resume our regular programming, call it, on uh, August 4th, on September 14th at 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time um, with uh, uh, Dr. Ng, whom I will mention at the closing. If you are enjoying these Dialogue Sunday sessions, please consider taking part in our mid-year fundraiser so that we can continue to bring you thoughtful and thought-provoking lessons and dialogue content. We'll add a text number in the chat. Numbers, the number is 435-246-5314 to get on that list. Today, I'm pleased to introduce uh, Dr. Andrea Radke Moss. Professor Moss is our teacher today. As always, I remind you that dialogue encourages a variety of viewpoints and that the views are expressed are always those of the individual speakers and writers. We did not ask Andrea to represent dialogue nor to represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We asked her voice for her viewpoint to enrich us all. Andrea Radke Moss is a professor of history at Brigham Young University, Idaho, where she teaches courses in the American West and US women's history. She received her PhD from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2002. And her book, Bright Epoch, Women and Coeducation in the American West was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2008. Her research areas are Western, Mormon, Western women and Mormon women broadly in topics like women's experiences in the Missouri War of 1838 especially sexual violence and Western women's participation at the 1893 World's Columbia Exposition. She has published widely, next sheet, widely in anthologies and journals in many areas of women's history. Her essay, Silent Memories of Missouri Women and Men and Sexual Assault in Group Memory and Religious Identity was awarded the Mormon History Association Best Article in Mormon Women's History in 2018. Andrea recently published a chapter on Mormonism and sexual violence 
in the Rutledge Handbook of Mormonism and Gender, edited by Taylor Petrie and Amy Hoyt. Her Church Street cred is having served a mission to Brazil, Caritiba, and being a Release Society president a couple of times. But she's been in primary for 10 years, which she claims is the best place for her away from the general population. She lives in Rexburg, 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 Idaho, with her husband and two children. Today, uh, as a program, we will begin or open with music, O Day of Peace by Josh Garrels. And our opening prayer, our invocation will be by Dr. James, David James Gonzalez. Uh, David James Gonzalez is an assistant professor of history at Brigham Young University. Dr. Gonzalez completed his BA in history summa cum laude at the University of California, San Diego, and his PhD in history at the University of Southern California, writing his dissertation on the Mexican-American struggle against segregation in Orange County, California from 1920 to 1950. In addition to his academic work, David James is a producer and host of the scholarly book review podcast, New Books in Latino Studies. Now we begin with music and prayer. Our dear Father in heaven, we are deeply grateful to be gathered together uh, through this medium and through technology uh, to uh, gather together in, in faith and in brother and sisterhood. We are grateful that we are to have uh, Dr. Andrea Ratke Moss with us and are grateful for the time that she has dedicated to preparing her remarks and guiding our lesson. We pray that that will open our minds and uh, that we may understand uh, her message, that we may think deeply on it and uh, be able to think of questions and, and thoughts that can help us all to learn and grow together. Father, we sincerely pray that thou will uh, bless us and all those uh, throughout the world that are struggling with the uh, hardships and devastation that has been brought by the coronavirus and by recent, recent natural disasters and uh, through aspects of social and political unrest. Father, we know that thy, thy peace is what can calm hearts and increase love and courtesy and empathy throughout the world. And we pray that that will indeed occur, that the love of thy son and his spirit will spread throughout all of us and our brothers and sisters, that we may work together to lift up those that are in need, lift up those that are suffering, and even sacrifice of our own time, our own comforts and privileges on behalf of our, our brothers and sisters. And these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Andrea, you're on. Um, thank you, David, for that beautiful prayer. I really appreciate it. Um, can everybody hear me okay? I guess you all. Thumbs up. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm grateful to be here with you today. I'm a little nervous, but um, hopefully I can plow through this. If you'll pardon me, um, I had a health setback earlier this year, which makes it difficult for me to hold things in my hands. And so I kind of 
loaded up my PowerPoint, which I always tell my students not to do, like just to load up lots of text into a PowerPoint, but um, just so that I can have it to look at without having to hold other stuff. So if you'll pardon me, that kind of explains, explains that. Um, anyway, I'm grateful for the support that I've received from the dialogue board and um, for Denise and David for giving prayers and Rebecca managing all the chat. I really appreciate all of you. Um, and my family's sitting here in the room with me, so Hi. hopefully I'll do okay. Anyway, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen and you can tell me if you can see it. Everybody see that okay? Now I wasn't sure what to title my lesson today because um, a lot of it is so negative. And so I decided to kind of center on Nephi himself because of what he goes through to, to try and save these people. Um, so I want to pick up with a review of where we left off um, last week, basically where we've left off with the condition of the Nephites and the Lamanites in Helaman chapter six. <clears throat> so we know that at this point, the Nephites, the spirit of the Lord had begun to withdraw from them because of the hardness of their hearts. And that the Lamanites, the Lord had begun to pour out his spirit because of their willingness to believe. Now, I wanted to focus on this, even though it's not technically part of my specific chapters today. I love this contrast between hardness of hearts and willingness to believe. Um, I love scriptures that don't say perfect knowledge. I love when they say willingness to believe or desire to believe. And we can, of course, refer to Alma 32 for similar, similar thoughts about willingness and desire to believe. And so I, I love that the Lamanites are being blessed for just their willingness to believe. Um, we know that the Nephites at this point were already supporting the Gadianton robbers. They were building them up and supporting them, whereas the Lamanites were hunting them down. So we have, again, this contrast of who's actually supporting Gadiantons, who's hunting them down. Nephites, of course, were using the Gadiantans to seduce the righteous, to believe in their works, and join with them and the Gadianton robbers. So they're trying to actually recruit people into this secret band of darkness. Whereas when the Lamanites would capture some of the Gadiantans, they actually tried to convert them back to the gospel. And I love this idea, again, of the Lamanites actually using a kind of restorative justice um, kind of to contrast the kind of retributive justice that we have today in our world where it's so focused on punishment, punishment. And here you have the Lamanites taking criminals and trying to basically restore them, restore them to the gospel. So there's a lot in chapter six of Helaman that I think gives us a good foundation of ideals to hope for as we see the Nephite society decline and decline. We can always go back and say, well, look at what the Lamanites had that you have to, that you have to aspire to. Um, the Nephite example is also prescient to show that when secret combinations happen, when these secret societies happen, when corruption happens, that it needs the people to keep that going, that people are the one, average people are the ones that keep secret combinations going. And without the people giving them fodder and giving them food and life that they wouldn't flourish as much as they do. Whereas the Lamanites, um, 
this wonderful example, again, of restorative justice, of re-educating offenders so they can rejoin society. Um, now, I'd like to stop here for a moment and just mention, you know, so often um, the Lamanite-Nephi duality can be used to, as some have done, to justify a kind of racial hierarchy because of the unfortunate association of darkness, dark skin with evilness that some interpreted as evil, as, as um, being wicked. But here you see the converse of that. Here you see, whereas these people are still defined by their tribal identity, their, their ethnic identity as Lamanites, and they're of course still identified as having dark skin, and yet the converse has happened. Now, the dark-skinned peoples are the ones who are righteous, and the quote-unquote lighter-skinned peoples are the ones who are absolutely wicked. And I hope that people focus on these scriptures, on this, this book of Helaman for showing us this the switch, as we've seen, I mean, we've seen it before in Alma as well, when we have examples of righteous Lamanites. And I think too often we don't focus on this notion of that the, that the mark is associated with the condition. And so this is a good reminder of that. Alrighty. Now, by the time we enter Helaman chapter 7, as we're going to enter into Nephi's, um, his mission to uh, his own people, basically, the Nephites' condition, their sins have become even worse. And as we read in verse 31, and now behold, he had got hold, great hold upon the hearts of the Nephites, insomuch that they had become exceedingly wicked. Yet the more part of them had turned away turned out of the way of righteousness and didn't trample under their feet the commandments of God and didn't turn unto their own ways and did build up unto themselves idols of their gold and silver. You already see one of the things that they're being condemned for, of course, which is that they're set on riches. And thus they did obtain soul management. And I wanted to highlight this term, soul management of the government, so much that they did trample under their feet and smite and rend and turn up, turn backs upon the poor and the meek and the humble followers of God. So what are their sins here? Their sins are basically making a dictatorship, taking control of the government, soul management. I'm reading that to mean they're not allowing other influence into their government voices. And yet their great sin, of course, in doing so is to turn their backs on the poor and the meek and the humble followers of God. And this is where they're lacking. And we know, of course, that the Lamanites are doing the opposite. The Lamanites are welcoming the meek and the humble, and they're taking care of the poor. Thus, we see that they were in an awful state and ripening for an everlasting destruction. Alrighty. So when Nephi returns, Nephi gets wind of all of this. He has been teaching in the north. He returns to the land of Zarahemla, his own land, his homeland. And he's on his way back home, but he... he observes and, and takes in all of this condition of the Nephites' great wickedness. And he decides instead to begin his proselyting, his teaching to his own people. And here's a list of things that Mormon says that um, the people of Zarahemla were, were guilty of. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just going to ask my husband to go get me some water. All righty. 
But one thing, they usurped power and authority of the land. They took over all of the power, which we saw in, in chapter six. They had sole management of the government. They laid aside the commandments of God. This phrase that I want to focus on, doing no justice unto the children of men. Now hold on to that, hold on to that phrase because I want to come back to it in a second. Doing no justice unto the children of men. Condemning the righteous. And what do we mean by righteous? Um, as as Mormon is making this contrast, righteous, I'm assuming to mean those who want to care for the meek and the humble and the poor, marginalized people. They also are guilty of letting the guilty and wicked go unpunished because of money. I'm going to hold on to that phrase as well. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Letting the guilty and wicked go unpunished because of money held in office at the head of government to rule and do according to their wills. So again, they have control of the government. They can do whatever they want. They have no checks and balances to restrain their actions as, as basically control of the entire Zarahemla government that they might get gain and glory of the world. These are their, these are their primary objectives. They want gain, meaning physical gain, and they want the glory of the world. They want all the attention on themselves. They might more easily commit adultery and steal and kill. And I was was struck by this phrase, more easily, as opposed to the usual ease of committing adultery, I guess. This makes their their life, the conditions that they've set up, the structure that they've set up is making it even more easy for people to do sexual sin. And at this point, I want to point out that what's interesting throughout all of these chapters is that sexual sin in, in this decline of the Nephite society is not prominent as is not prominently mentioned in all of these chapters is only mentioned this time and another time when mormon refers to it as fornication but other than that the main sins that the nephites are guilty of are these other sins of pride in their wealth and not caring for the marginalized people that's their main sins and that's what that is what is upsetting nephi so much and I think sometimes as members of the church, we sometimes associate when we, when we read the Book of Mormon, we read these societies that have great wickedness and great evil, we often automatically go to sexual sin. That's what they were doing wrong. But in this case, that wasn't the primary concern of, of Nephi, of how this society was declining. It had to do with um, what we're going to refer to, of course, as social justice. And of course, this, this is what is mentioned. They are guilty of doing no justice unto the children of men. Alrighty. And I want to read this again, as I mentioned, as a failure of social justice in this community. The fact that they've become so attached to their wealth, the fact that they have attached themselves to riches and to their gold and their silver, um, the fact that they are neglecting the poor, they're ignoring the poor, and they're even abusing the poor. And this is what is upsetting Nephi so much. I want to go back to the other phrase where they say, letting the guilty and wicked go unpunished because of money. And I want to paraphrase it also to include, or punishing the innocent and poor because of no money. Do you understand that contrast that I'm making there, or that kind of parallel? I guess I'm making more of a parallel than a contrast. Punishing the innocent and poor because of no money. So I want to kind of get into our kind of current events a little bit. And I want to, I'm going to see if we can recognize this in our society today, how easy it is for people convicted of so, so-called white-collar crimes in the United States that often go unpunished because of people's association, their affiliation, their connections to people in high positions of leadership, connections to high-powered attorneys, 
people, attorneys with a lot of money, resources, or individuals in high positions that can just pardon people or excuse them or give them clemency. And we see these types of crimes like tax evasion, insider trading, fraud, bribery, um, gambling. We can include political dealing for large donors, um, basically um, political corruption. These Sometimes these kinds of crimes you see go unpunished. And what's interesting, I found one New York Times article that said in recent years, quote, white collar prosecutions have fallen to a record low in what few cases are prosecuted, mostly concerned low-level con artists. In 2018, nearly 19,000 people were sentenced in federal court for drug crimes alone. But prosecutors convicted just 37 corporate criminals who worked at companies with more than 50 employees. That's exposing an entrenched, unfettered class of super predators that's wreaking havoc on American society. And in the process, they've broken only systems capable of, only systems capable of stopping them. So on the one end, we have people not people going unpunished because of their money. Now let's look at the other end. Let's look at the cases of people going too punished because of no money. And I want to draw upon a, a book and recent movie by Brian Stevenson. Um, the he's a famous lawyer. If you've seen the movie Just Just Mercy, um, basically goes to Alabama to help get people off of death row, um, um, black men who have been convicted on death row, um, partly because of their lack of access to good attorneys, um, of plea dealings, all of these things. And here's a quote from the book. We have a system of criminal justice, he says, that continues to treat people better if they are rich and guilty than if they are poor and innocent. A system that denies the poor the legal help they need, that makes wealth and status more important than culpability. Such a system can infect a community, a state, or a nation and make us blind, irrational, and dangerous. And as we see in today's society, this disproportionate overrepresentation of black men in prisons is exposing this structural problem that has been for, you know, over time, all of these different, all of these different causes, of course, from reconstruction onward, but built into our system of uh, really going after drug crimes, and of course the problems when you are dealing with primarily poor people who can't afford legal representation, then sometimes the public defenders will just plea bargain out and convince people well, you might as well plea bargain this because you don't have a lawyer that's going to give you get you off if you go to a trial by jury, and so too many men are just choosing to do this option, just plea bargaining out. Um, and you see this also if you have a chance to ever see Just Mercy, and I would highly recommend it. Um, he out, so Stevenson outlines unfair use of the plea bargaining as well, and I, and I, I he doesn't deal with this as much in the movie, but this is uh, something else that we see predominantly in a lot of urban areas where the police go after um, um, the black community for misdemeanor crimes, traffic crimes, and then those build up and build up over time, and so they can't afford to pay those fines, and eventually they get a rap sheet that makes them more um, wanted by the police because they haven't paid parking tickets. Or And these things are they're, they're what I want to talk about. I think that this directly connects to how the Nephites were living. Um, Mormon does describe them as letting the wicked go unpunished because of money. This was a structural problem in their society just as it is in ours as well, and they weren't doing anything about this. Um, and I'm seeing this chat light up with a lot of comments. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on this comparison. I hope I'm, I hope I'm making a fair comparison. I think, that, I think that it is a fair comparison to make. 
in this situation. So as a result, Nephi, upset by all of these inequities that he sees in their society, decides to go and pray. And he chooses the tower that's there in Zarahemla. It's kind of on the main road. It's the main highway on the way to the marketplace. And it's next to his garden. So it's basically close to, I would say, probably the prophet, the president of the church home that he's living right there, kind of in the centerpiece of the community. And he goes up to pray and he decides to do this as a very public prayer. He does this on purpose. This is very consciously done. And you get this sense as you read it, that he goes up to this tower. He knows that people are going to be walking by on this marketplace and people are going to be seeing him. And they're going to be seeing him in the act of prayer. And he draws this out. Well, behold, he says, and the scripture says that they're amazed. The people are marveling. Why is, the, why is Nephi up on this tower praying? Behold, why have you gathered yourselves together that I may tell you of your iniquities? You have gathered yourselves together and do marvel, he says. And then he describes how he's feeling. My heart is full, swollen with sorrow. He begins to wax nostalgic and he says, oh, that I had lived back in the days of our father Lehi and Nephi when things were more righteous. And I'm thinking, whoa, <laughs> um, not as righteous as you might think. And um, I'm going to draw on some things that Michael has written about where he calls it historiolatry. Am I saying that right, Michael? Historiolatry or the idolizing of a history that never was. <laughs> Do you ever hear this? You ever hear people say, back in the day, things were better. Back in the day, things were more righteous. And it lends itself to this narrative of a gradual decline in society that one time we all had this kind of um, nadir of righteousness that's gradually been in decline over time and it's ultimately going to culminate in this great destruction of the world. And I sometimes, as a historian, of course, I, I rub against that idea a little bit. And I rubbed against Nephi doing this as well, because I'm thinking, Nephi, if you went back and read First Nephi, you would see that already the contentions and the divisions and the hatred was building in and the division between the brothers and all of that is already building in. And you're, you're kind of romanticizing things a little bit. That was my impression. Like you're romanticizing this a little bit, but I, you see this a lot. We do this a lot. And as a historian, I rub against this a little bit because um, especially when I teach the 19th century, which is my primary area of study is 19th and early 20th century is, um, you know, after the civil war, the condition for freed slaves in the South was not a happy story, um, particularly after reconstruction. That's, that's not a happy story. That's not a conclusion that you can, that lends itself to looking back with nostalgia and romanticism. Even the condition of families in the 19th century, when you consider that in the 19th century, yes, white middle-class families had what we see as the traditional nuclear family, and yet slave culture allowed for the systemic sexual abuse of black women by white men systemically across the century and so sometimes when we look back and say oh family values back then i waver at that a little bit i'm not really those aren't the family values that we should look at and so so leaving this discussion of nephi kind of there this waxing nostalgic michael i hope i dealt with that accurately enough i hope i kind of um explained that as well as i i wanted to um 
Then he bows himself upon the tower. He's consciously visible, and he begins to pour out his soul to God. I was struck by reading these, um, reading these chapters, and this chapter in particular is the notion of a tower. And why did he do this? Why did he go up on a tower? And I thought about towers in Book of Mormon stories. And it allowed me to go back and look at where towers have been prominent for different reasons in different scriptural settings and used for different reasons. So we can go back to the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel was used for pride and hubris, trying to escape punishment and get to God. We have the power within ourselves to get to God. And you see this not only referred to in the Bible, but also multiple references in the Book of Mormon, and of course, regarding the Jaredites. So here's a tower, another tower, King Benjamin's tower, a much happier, a more righteous tower, something that um, this tower, you think of this tower and it brings a sense of peace and joy when you think of this, this tower because he's gathering his people, he's teaching, he's teaching about service, and he's consecrating himself before the entire community. And this, we see, is a wonderful example of a tower, but definitely something that has to be public. Well, King Benjamin's tower, we often don't think about what happens to it after King Benjamin is done giving his addresses. But the thing stays up. Later, Noah uses it as a way of escaping from Gideon and getting out. But then later, Limhi takes back the tower and uses it to observe the oncoming Lamanite armies that are attacking him. But he's suspicious because he, he thinks that there's something wrong. There's something not right. And so they capture the Lamanite king. And instead of having him killed, Limhi is able to ask him what's wrong. And they, they're able to work out their their communication problems and the the assumption that the Lamanites had that Limhi was coming to attack him and they're able to find out the truth. A tower is used for Limhi to be able to see the Lamanites and recognize that something's not not right, something's amiss. So another use of King Benjamin's tower. You also have a tower used for military messaging, prominent in the Book of Alp. Book of Alma, of course, Moroni raises the title of liberty, and we often don't pay attention to the fact that Moroni also takes it around, and he has different communities posted up on towers, as you're seeing. So the title of liberty wasn't just kind of carried around as a flag. It was actually posted up on top of towers for people to see. So we can call this a military banner, a war banner, a patriotism banner, whatever you want to call it, a rallying symbol, of course. Um, certainly political messages embedded in that. And later on, Malachiah does the same thing in order to stir up the Lamanites. He also puts flags up on the tower, towers in order to rally the Lamanites, in order to stir up the Lamanites in hatred so that he can eventually become the king of the Lamanites. So in this case, he's using it as a form of propaganda. You can say that both Moroni's title of liberty and Malachi's title, um, his messaging, they're both forms of propaganda but having to be up high in public, deceptive messaging. <clears throat> anyway, so I'm going to skip over that verse that I'm referencing there. And finally, this tower that I want to talk about. The Zoramites, when, when Alma encounters the Zoramites, he finds them a wealthy community, except, of course, that are poor in the community. And they are basically using a tower next to the synagogue to go up and basically pray about their, how great they are, how wonderful they are. 
And he says, a place for standing, which was high above the head and the top thereof would only admit one person. So people have to take turns going up on top of this tower. And they would say something to the effect of, we thank thee that we are a chosen and holy people. And every person has to get up and, and, and say this over and over again. And I want to I want to contrast this. I want to come back to Nephi on his tower and what the Zoramites are doing here. And I want us to think about, back to Nephi, what he's doing on his tower is he is doing a public prayer just like the Zoramites. But the Zoramites are almost bragging about their community sin, their community pride, whereas Nephi is using his tower to call out community pride and community sin. Um, of course, he knows that the Nephites are about getting gain, the praise of men. He's criticizing them. All of this is in his prayer. You're, you're here to get the gold and silver. You set your hearts upon the riches and the vain things of the world for which you murder, plunder, steal, and bear false witness. Look at this list of sins. Murder, plunder, which is basically kind of ravaging the countryside, taking spoils of war. Stealing, so it could be forms of um, monetary crimes, of stealing from the poor. It could be little, literal physical robbing of people. And, of course, bearing false witness. So he's calling out these types of crimes that are associated with governments in corruption okay it says you do all manner of iniquity he begins to prophesy of nephite destruction and i'm going to use the word destruction because you'll see it throughout these chapters and he tells them what the destruction will look like woe unto you except you repent great cities taken away no strength in other words you won't have military military strength to withstand your enemies you shall perish even your lands shall be taken from you, and ye shall be destroyed from off the face of the earth. So I want you to think about this contrast. Look at these two scenes. In the case of the Zoramites, the Zoramites are using a tower and using a kind of false prayer to proclaim their group resistance to change, to, to resisting changing their community. Whereas Nephi is using a righteous prayer as a way to call a community to repentance. So one community is resisting repentance. The other community is being called to repentance. And so the symbolism of a tower and how it is used in these settings is how do communities deal with their structural injustices? How do they deal with the inequities in their society? Are they bragging about those societies for about those inequities for all of the world to see? Or are they correcting those inequities? And I want us to remember that throughout these verses, throughout these chapters, the sins are referred to as our sins, us. The plural noun is used over and over and over repeatedly. Nephi uses the plural noun to talk to the Nephites. The Nephites use the plural noun back at him when they're being defensive about us and we. And so I, I want us to think about these kinds of thin, sins as being a community sin, the, the sin of a group, a collective sin. And that, I think, directly relates to what we can refer to as social justice sins, sins in which the structure of an entire community is causing repeated harms, repeated marginalization, repeated inequities over and over and over again because they're built in. They're built into how the system and the community functions. And so what I see 
in both of these settings is also that the people that are either committing the sins, in both cases, the people that are committing the sins, the Zoramites in the case of um, Alma and the Ramiumptum, and the Nephites, the Gadiantans, they're both guilty of what I call exceptionalism. And think of it in this way. Have you ever heard people say, well, that can't happen here because our society is perfect. That doesn't happen here. Our laws are perfect. Our system is, is perfect. Even our church is perfect. So those things can't happen. The challenge of exceptionalism is it doesn't allow, it doesn't allow a group or a community, as we've seen with both the Zormites as well as the Ganyantans, it doesn't allow a group to be humble and own their group sins. It doesn't allow them to own where change can happen in their community, where they might need to change some things structurally in order to better follow the commandments of the Lord. Look at what the Zoramites say and that reflects their exceptionalism. Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren, and we do not believe in the tradition of our brethren, which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers, but we believe that thou hast elected us to be thy holy children, and also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. So this hubris and this um, exceptionalism is also leading them to deny Christ's divinity as well. And then they say again, and again, we thank thee, O God, that we are a chosen and holy people. And this I'm using as a language that reflects exceptionalism. Now let's look at how the Nephites in Helaman use it, Gadiantans in 8.5. Therefore, they did cry unto the people saying, why do ye, this is the Gadiantans, saying to the rest of the community, why are you allowing Nephi to criticize us? Why are you allowing Nephi to call us to repentance? Therefore, they did cry unto the people, saying, Why do ye suffer this man to revile against us? For behold, he doth condemn all this people, even unto destruction, in all that these, our great cities, shall be taken from us, that we shall have no place in them. We have great cities. And now we know that this is impossible. For behold, we are powerful, and our cities are great. Therefore, our enemies can have no power over us. Do you see the comparison in the language of exceptionalism in both cases? We're too good for these bad things that you are accusing of us of to happen. We're too, our, our laws function too well. Our system functions too well. We're happy with what we have. And so why should we be worried about how our system affects other people? Um, exceptionalism, a, a, a rhetoric and a trend that we should all be cautious of. So as a result, then, you have these secret bands and combinations. I got to tell you, I was looking for images of the Gadianton robbers on the internet, and I found this one in particular. And boy, it took me down. Ooh, it took me to all kinds of weird websites and conspiracy theories. And I mean, I, I sometimes wonder where members of the church get caught up in conspiracy theories. And I think it's rooted in the Gadianton robber stories that allow people to make these kind of connections. And I'm not saying that those concerns aren't legitimate in those cases. And the Gadianton robbers were certainly a secret society, but you see the Gadianton robbers represented in a lot of this kind of tendency to um, see the secrecy and the badness in, in how you see politics. Interesting. Anyway, so finally, Nephi, after he's listed all these sins, He's on his tower. He's listed all these horrible sins that everyone has committed, that the Nephites have committed. 
And then he ends with this one. He says, you have committed the great abomination. He calls it the great abomination. So in his mind, the worst sin that they've done, you have united yourselves unto the secret band. Now we know the secret band had already existed from the chapters we studied previously, um, but it sometimes goes in and out. And of course we saw the Lamanites trying to convert the secret band, but under this unrighteous Nephite society, the Gadiantans are again rising to power. They're again flourishing, they're recruiting, and this is what is really upsetting Nephite. And it's the Gadianton robbers, the structure of the Gadianton robbers that's allowing them to commit all these other sins. They're able to give favors and bribery and fraud to their friends. They're able to get people out of jail if they have enough money. They're able to share money and wealth among each other. They murder. Um, and of course, they're neglecting the poor because the poor wouldn't be allowed in these secret combinations. So I got to thinking, what are examples, without being too specific, how can we think about secret bands in our lives that do works of darkness? And of course, there's, I mean, you can make all kinds of lists of secret bands that do works of darkness that might include terrorist groups, oligarchies, the rule of just the wealthy, uh, political machines that could happen on a local level, it could happen on a national level, it could even happen on a global level, um, secret cabals, trafficking organizations, mafias, white supremacist organizations, neo-Nazi groups. This, is, this was just me brainstorming how I could apply this fear of secret societies and secret combinations to the things that we deal with today and how our discipleship as followers of Christ can help us resist these secret combinations which still exist today. And the ways that, and you can look at this list and maybe um, in the comments if somebody wants to um, throw in some other ideas that you can have of actual secret combinations or metaphorical or symbolic secret combinations. Um, and certainly we can take these to a metaphor, metaphorical and symbolic level or a personal level. Do we have our own secret combinations? Do we have secret combinations in our own lives in which we have unhealthy friendships that cause divisions with other friends? Do we have unhealthy um, relationships in our workplaces or even at church that cause divisions and resentment or that cause us to do harm to other people? These can be ways of looking at metaphorical secret bands in our own lives. Are we part of a secret band? But certainly the list that I made, I think that these are legitimate concerns, things that we need to be concerned about, especially in recent months, as you see in recent years, the, the rise and the empowerment, the emboldening, the emboldening of white supremacist groups and neo-Nazi groups. As you see this, um, how can we teach our children, how can we teach our communities and our students to be aware and wary of these kinds of secret bands and these works of darkness? These are important things to be concerned about while also relating secret combinations to our own lives. He says, Nephi says, Woe shall come unto you for the pride which ye have suffered to enter your hearts, which has lifted you up beyond that which is good because of your exceedingly great riches. So he basically says, The reason you're all in these secret bands to begin with is because you want to be rich. That's the whole reason. Now, the list that I made, of course, certainly the secret combinations I made a list of, a lot of those have to do with getting rich and getting wealthy and murder, but a lot of them also have to do with um, 
hatred, ideological hatred, racial hatred, group hatred, religious hatred, all of these things that are, shall we say, exceedingly great problems, not exceedingly great riches, but exceedingly great evil in other ways. Alrighty, so he's calling out the Nephites on their secret combinations. He's listed their sins for them. What's happening with the Lamanites, by the way? What are they doing these days while the Nephites are being chastised by Nephi and being called to repentance on his tower? What are the Lamanites doing? Well, we know that at one time they had lived integrated with the Nephites. This was basically a full, equal racial integration. But they were still known by their group designation and, of course, still defined by their skin color and name. There weren't at this point, there weren't no, they, did, they didn't have no ites yet, as we'll see in 4th Nephi, of no ites. We still have ites, but this group is trying to live righteously and trying to integrate with their other ites. They lived as a Zion people. We know that they lived as a Zion people because as we learned in the previous chapters in Helaman, we know that in this case, the Lamanites had again laid down their weapons. They have laid down their weapons of war. They're working on converting their enemies to the gospel. They're, they are taking care of the poor. So the Lamanites, they're following Christ. They're living as a Zion people in contrast. And then an interesting comment, um, and I'm not sure if this is Mormon just quoting Nephi or if this is Mormon's little editorial, but I, I maybe tend to think that this is just Mormon editorializing where he says, now therefore, I would that ye should behold, my brethren, that it shall be better for the Lamanites than for you, except ye shall repent. So in other words, the Lamanites are in a better spiritual condition than you are. But this is an interesting one. For behold, they are more righteous than you, for they have not sinned against that great knowledge which ye have received. Therefore the Lord will be merciful unto them, yea, he will lengthen out their days and increase their seed, and even when thou shalt be utterly destroyed, except thou shalt repent. And I was a little struck by this phrase that Mormon probably is using that they have not for they have not sinned against that great knowledge which ye have received interesting um I'm interested to hear people people's thoughts on this particular phrase it it sounded to me like a little bit like sometimes a trope that's used um they don't know any better does it sound like that to you they have not sinned against the great knowledge they don't know any better they know less than you um, and maybe I'm reading this um, wrong or maybe taking it a little farther than what his meaning was, but it almost sounds a little bit um, maybe demeaning, not putting Lamanites and Nephites on the same maybe intellectual and spiritual knowledge level, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm reading that correctly, but I, I want to kind of ask your opinion on that and see if you might read that the same way. And again, something that is kind of a warning, if that is what he means, um, I think it's something else to be careful of, is to not, not stereotype groups of people as being this group is more aware, less aware, this group is more righteous, less righteous, this group is more knowledgeable, this other group, group is less knowledgeable. It has, a, it has a pattern of dehumanizing or demeaning, um, a way of stereotyping or racializing people even. So something that just stood out to me. But still, the Lamanites received great promises, according to Nephi. Therefore, the Lord will be merciful unto them. Yea, he will lengthen out their days and increase their seed. And even when thou shalt be utterly destroyed, meaning you Nephites, um, 
except thou shalt repent. You can, you can be like the Lamanites if you repent, but right now you guys are on a really, really bad footing. Okay. All righty. Do you mind if I take a drink for a minute? Is that okay with everybody? Can you take a pause? Hmm. Thank you. All righty, so let's look at, um, Nephi is teaching the Nephites in general, and he's calling them to repentance. An interesting dynamic begins to, to emerge. Um, first of all, not only are there Ganyant and robbers that are corrupt, but they also have in position in government, they have judges who are corrupt. And so the Gadiantans begin to um, complain to the other Nephites, and they say, why do you not seize upon this man and bring him forth that ye may be condemned, that he may be condemned according to the crime which he has done? The crime which he has done. What crime has he done? What crime do you think they think he's done? Well, we don't know. It's the fact that he's just calling them to repentance, that he's outlining their sins in public, and instead of dealing with what he's accusing them of, instead they're attacking the messenger. I see this as a classic form of gaslighting. They're gaslighting by basically saying that their enemies, the person who's come to correct them on their sins, well, you're guilty of the same things or you're guilty of worse things than we are. And how often do we see this today um, in politics and other places where your political opponent, you're quick to call that political opponent out for something that you know you're doing because you want to turn the public attention toward somehow demonizing or otherizing that political enemy, whereas you're the one that's actually guilty of doing it. Um, so here's the Nephites. They're basically gaslighting Nephi. He hasn't committed a crime. He hasn't done anything wrong except to call them out for their sins. Then the Ganeant judges then accuse Nephi of reviling against our people and against our law. Against our law. So again, the problem of exceptionalism. They're defending our law is perfect. Our law needs no change. And why is Nephi calling out our law when he has no right to do that because our law is perfect? But what Nephi is saying is, of course, that law is corrupt. If there are any laws that are on the books that should be obeyed in order to maintain an equity in the society, they're not being fulfilled. And maybe through corrupt governance, because as we know, the Gadiantans and their unrighteous Nephites have sole control of the government. They have sole control. They have basically a tyranny. They are able to determine laws that benefit them. And so, yeah, can he call out unrighteous laws or unjust laws? Yes, he can, because he knows that that's what they're doing. And yet they're defending themselves by saying, well, we're exceptional. Our laws are perfect. <clears throat> he speaks to them. Mormon describes as Nephi speaking to them plainly, plainly of their secret works of darkness. And I often get today, it's just so frustrating um, today in society because of so much misinformation and competing information and um, conflicting stories and fake news, if you want to use that, that phrase that I don't like because of how it's been used. But as people do call out where they see crimes happening, where they see racial injustice, where they see um, 
uh, improper actions during a pandemic, these secret words of darkness, as you speak plainly of them, and yet people get defensive. Everybody's, everybody defends themselves or they gaslight or they say, no, that's not what we're doing. Um, you're the one that's doing wrong. So um, I'm, I'm, seeing this, I'm seeing this dynamic going on here as these corrupt judges are entering this conversation with Nephi. Again, the Gadianton judges insist upon their exceptionalism. Our cities are great and we are powerful. So how dare you? How dare you call us to repentance because our cities are great and we are powerful? And we know that the Gadianton judges have stirred up people to anger. They've raised contentions. Um, I hope as we're reading through some of these verses and some of these ideas that you all are seeing definite comparisons to um, definite comparisons to our society today of how much those that have power and those that have influence in the government, those that have access to wealth and influence are the ones that often are stirring up people to anger. They're the ones that are raising contention. And that's exactly what's happening. And yet, look what happens. Some people begin to defend him. Not everybody, not all of the Nephites that he's talking to are attacking him unilaterally. Some of them begin to say, this guy's making sense. Let this man alone. He is a good man. And this made me think of the importance of having allies when people are being marginalized, when somebody is calling out marginalization of their own people. How much does it help when you have an ally, somebody who is maybe not of your community, but is of the community that's doing the marginalization that will come in and say, yeah, these people are right. You are abusing them. You are committing crimes against them. You are um, not allowing justice to happen. Um, and so you see some allies popping up here as Nephi is trying to call the Gadiantans and the judges to repentance. There's these, these allies that are coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, we like this guy. And then he testifies again of their iniquities, for we know that he has testified aright unto us concerning our iniquities, and behold, they are many. So the allies are saying, actually, he's right. We have a lot of sins. And he knoweth all well as well all things which shall befall us as he knoweth our iniquities. Notice again the contrast between the exceptionalism, the, def the, the getting defensive about your community, as opposed to this group, these allies saying, actually, yeah, our community, our group sins are, are many. We have done these bad things. We have done these bad things. And we're, we're owning to them. Um, what if, that, what if that were to happen more often in our society? What if when people do see injustice happening that they can jump in and say, yes, I see the injustice happening to this group of people. I'm going to jump in and defend this group of people and the importance of having those allies. Now we're going to find out in the long run, Nephi's whole effort is going to be for naught because this society continues to decline. But you do see these, these hints. Now it comes down to, um, that, oh, sorry, I can't read when I've got the people who sought to destroy Nephi were compelled because of their fear. He had gained favor in the eyes of some, insomuch that the remainder of them did fear. And yet, to notice the contrast between the allies trying to call attention to sins and the ones that are being defensive are being caught up in fear. So, fear mongering, something we of course see today fear mongering, fear mongering to put people against each other, to um, create conflict, to create divisions in communities. 
you not only deny my words, but you also deny all the words which have been spoken by our fathers. Now, this one struck to me. I wanted, I wanted to talk about, and I hope I'm not going to step on toes by saying this. Um, recently, very recently, I saw on one of the posts, Facebook posts or blog posts, something about a petition, I guess. So, so um, the black students at BYU have called for the renaming of the BYU, many of the BYU buildings, especially those that are named after known slave owners and racists, et cetera. Now, I don't want to get into that particular issue right now and what BYU should do. That's not my point in this discussion. My point is when I saw a petition against doing that was the reasoning that some people used. And the reasoning that I saw over and over and over and over again is we shouldn't judge those people on the standards of today. We shouldn't judge the past. We shouldn't judge the actors in the past based upon our standards today. That's unfair because they didn't live by our standards today. And again, my historian buzzer goes off. No, 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 not true. We had people in the 19th century that were just as, that were vocally anti-slavery abolitionists um, calling for the full equality, the full humanity of, of uh, black Americans across the board. Organizations, groups, individuals, men, women, anti-slavery societies, former slaves themselves, freed slaves, escaped slaves, everybody speaking against the um, injustices done to black Americans in the 19th century. And so to say that we shouldn't judge certain people by the standards of their day, they, the standards of their day were the standards of our day, if you look at the right voices. Am I making sense? I hope that my point is making sense. And so look at how Nephi words this. He says, ye not only deny my words, but ye also deny all the words which have been spoken by our fathers. He's saying you're denying also things that people have said in the past against injustice. You know that people have said things against injustice in the past. You're denying those things and you're claiming that they didn't say those or you're forgetting them or you're ignoring those previous prophet statements. And he's saying, I'm not saying anything that's, that should be new to you. Everything that I'm saying to you is something that you should have heard in the past or, or that you should remember. So think of this. Think of this scripture. If you ever hear people say, we shouldn't judge people by the standards of today. Eh. You've got, now got a scripture and a verse to use that. Then he goes into saying, well, here's all the prophets that have testified of Christ, and many of them to the point of actually losing their lives or making great sacrifices. Not necessarily entirely losing their lives, but certainly making great sacrifices. And, of course, he labels, he names Moses and talks about the typology of the servant, of the serpent, and he re relates that to symbolism of turning to Christ because of course he wants the Nephites to become a Zion community and turn to Christ. He refers to Abraham who saw the coming of Christ and rejoiced. rejoiced. He, he refers to Zenos who did testify boldly for which he was slain. And we do have other scriptures. I've just put in the right hand column other scriptures as references of where these individuals were referred to. We don't know a lot about Zenos or Zenoch except what we know a little bit about what they testified of but not who they were um, we know how they died, but we don't know much more about them. But Helaman is referring back to, or excuse me, Nephi is referring back to them as examples of, look, you know, these prophets that already testified of you following Christ and you've forgotten them. He talks about um, Isaiah, somebody we don't know who that is. We have no record of this prophet, no other reference. 
You do have Isaiah and, of course, Jeremiah. And he's referring to them as, again, examples of prophets who gave their all and then ended up dying for the cause of testifying of Christ. All righty. Okay, so Nephi then announces the murder of the chief judge. And I want to go through this very quickly. I have a whole bunch of stuff. This is for me, not for you. So it's written small, but it's for me to, to remember. So he announces that the judge has been murdered by his brother. Both belong to your secret band. He says, by the way, one Gadiant robber is already killed, another Gadiant robber, and they happen to be brothers. And, of course, the others are saying, no, no, this can't be true. So five of them run to the judgment seat to see if what Nephi said is true. And then they see that it's true. The, the chief judge is dead. We do not believe he's a prophet, but, but, but we might believe some of the things that he has to say. They're astonished. They quake. They fall to the earth. This reminded me of Ammon and Lamoni and all that story in Alma, of people being amazed and then falling to the earth and fainting. And multitude, then the multitude comes and finds the five are fainted on the ground. And so they think that they're the murderers and they cast them into prison. And Nephi, of course, is still back at his, at his tower, his home. And the multitude, I found this interesting. Here's an unrighteous society that did assemble to mourn and fast for this judge. They mourned and fasted. They're doing an act of worship, even though they're technically an unrighteous society. Um, I'd love to know people's thoughts on that one. Are they fasting as just a kind of a token rote type of action? Or is this a sincere fasting because some of them are actually coming to repentance. Some of them are feeling what Nephi is teaching. So the judges call for the five out of prison and they ask them, did you do this? And they say, no. Um, but Nephi told us that they, that this happened. And so then they start to think that Nephi had plotted against somebody else to do it so that he could prove his prophecies basically as a way of testing people and having a sign to prove to them. They even offer him money. They say, we'll give you money to name your co-conspirator and we'll give you your life. Of course, this is where Nephi then kicks it into high gear and says, um, by the way, you all are bad. And then he hits them with the big cheese of insults. The, you are uncircumcised of heart. That's the worst thing you can call somebody, right? Um, but then he begins to give another prophecy. He says, by the way, because you don't believe me, why don't you go over to the brother's house and you confront him, ask him if he did it. He'll say he didn't. Then ask to see his cloak, see that there's blood on it, and then he'll start to hem and haw, and he'll get nervous and anxious, and then you can say, yes, you did it, didn't you? And then you'll extract a confession out of him. So they say, okay, we'll do that, and they go, and sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And so Nephi and the five are released. So this is the basic story. It might be familiar to most of you, because it's kind of a commonly told story, this famous story of when Nephi predicts the murder of the chief judge without anybody knowing. But what I found interesting instead was how many people didn't still believe him. Notice the next verse. And there were some, some of the Nephites who believed on the words of Nephi. Only some, not all. Only some of the Nephites believed on the word of, words of Nephi. So even after having this great miracle, this great proof that he's a prophet of God, they still don't believe him. It came to pass that there arose a division among the people. So they start fighting again because they're fighting about who did it and was Nephi guilty and is Nephi telling us the truth and should we follow him? And now behold, notwithstanding that great miracle which Nephi had done in telling them concerning the chief judge, they did harden their hearts and did not hearken unto the words of the Lord. They hardened their hearts. When Nephi declared unto them the word, behold, they did still harden their hearts and would not hearken unto his words. Therefore, they did revile against him 
and did seek to lay their hands upon him that they might cast him into prison. So even though they know he's not guilty, they're still going after him. Nephi's just having a rough time with these people. He's just having a really rough time. Let's, um, then this, what happens to Nephi? He's basically left standing alone. I call this Nephi alone, Nephi blessed. I, I consider this kind of this, God is now kind of wrapping Nephi in all of his comfort. He's sanctifying him in a way. Um, I read something shared by a friend this week that said that this was his calling and election made sure. But in the interest of interest of time, I don't want to get into too much of that because I've got more to go through. But um, the Lord says, Blessed art thou, Nephi, for those things which thou hast done. For I have, have beheld how thou hast with unweariness declared the word. But basically, you haven't quit. You persisted and persisted, which I have given unto the end to this people. And thou hast not feared them and hast not sought thine own life. And by that, I mean, I think he means you've given up your own life. You've given up your own selfish desires, your own desires, not selfish, but desires in order to serve me and to teach these people. But I sought my will and to keep my commandments. And now because thou hast done this with such unweariness, behold, I will bless thee forever. I will make thee mighty in word and deed in faith and in works. Yea, even that all things shall be done unto thee according to thy word. For thou shalt not, thou shalt not ask what is, what is contrary to my will. So basically he says, Nephi, you're blessed. I'm giving you all of this power. So, and he tells him all the things he can do. He said, you can, you have power to smite people. You can smite them with famine and pestilence and destruction. He also gives him the sealing power. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And then he tells him, these are all the things you can do if you want, if you want to. If you want to, you can rent things in twain. You can cast things down. You can smite or act as for things to be smitten, smite smitten. You can do all of these things, whatever you want to do to get at these people. You, everything is at your, is basically a tool in your toolbox. The Lord is basically giving him license to, to just rip these people into shreds and to use the harshest punishments that he could possibly do. And he's given him power to call upon the will of God and the wrath of God to basically take out these people. And so he tries this. He goes right back. He's on his way home, but he turns around. And he goes right back. What's interesting is he doesn't immediately call upon all these powers to do. He just tells them he can do it. He doesn't start smiting them. He tells them he can do it. He says, except you repent, ye shall be smitten even unto destruction. He doesn't do it yet. So he's still, I see this as Nephi. He's still holding out hope for these people. He's still hanging in there. Um, and yet look at all the things he does in these verses. He stands alone. He ponders. He was on his way home. He probably hasn't eaten for days. Instead, he chooses not to go back home and instead return to the multitude. He continues to work with unweariness. But he gets so much resistance that in these verses, I um, maybe didn't have time to research these as much as I wanted to. And I would love to get um, audience feedback from this class feedback. He was taken by the spirit and conveyed away out of the midst of them. And it came to pass that thus he did go forth in the spirit from multitude to multitude, declaring the word of God, even until he had declared it unto them all or sent it forth among all the people. Um, what's happening here? Nephi is being carried away in almost like I'm picturing a kind of a spiritual cloud. And he's able to move among the people in this very spiritual kind of action. I'm almost, almost disembodied. 
almost. But I, again, I might not be reading this correctly. There might be some symbolism in here that I'm missing, but it sounds pretty literal to me. And I would love to know people's thoughts on what is happening here. Um, the fact that we lose track of Nephi at the end of these chapters makes me wonder what happened to him. Is this spiritual transformation? Is this something having to do with um, an actual physical mortal trans transformation into um, sometimes I have stroke brain, I'm missing words, resurrected being, um, you know, three Nephites kind of thing. Is this what's happening to him? Is he being transitioned over into another kind of being because of his righteousness? So here he is. Let's set up this setting before I um, jump into this. He's been told, you can do anything you want to these people. God has given him all of this power. You can throw rocks at them. You can earthquakes bring mountains down, rain, pestilence, all these, everything, everything you can do, storms, everything you can do. And what does he do? He goes back and he teaches them again. And he asks the Lord, this is what he says, he asks the Lord, do not suffer that this people shall be destroyed by the sword. But, O Lord, rather let there be a famine in the land to stir them up in remembrance of the Lord their God, and perhaps they will repent and turn unto thee. Um, do you notice Nephi's immense compassion and love for these people here? Um, he has every right to be really ticked off. He has every right to be angry. He has every right to want to throw big boulders at them. Instead, he's not doing that. He has every right to, to say that they, they can just be destroyed with war. And he doesn't. Instead, he says, let me take it from here. Let me just have a famine, just a famine. And I found that this chapter in particular, Helaman 11, I would like you to read it when you get a chance later. Read it and change the word famine for pandemic. Could you do that for me? Everybody go back and read these verses and change the word famine for pandemic. And read the entire chapter and see if you can see that chapter 11 is, it almost feels like we're living it in the moment. We're living it in the moment. And we don't have... Nephi, but we have our own prophet and what his role in is role is in helping to comfort us and to guide us through these times. Um, whereas Nephi is using the famine to basically punish, to kind of not punish, but to, to compel them to be humble. If I'm going to use kind of the Zoramites, comparison of the Zoramites. And thus in the 74th year, the famine did continue and the work of destruction did cease by the sword, but became sore by famine. Here's another question I have for you. Why do you think that Nephi thought that it was preferable for these people to suffer by famine rather than to suffer by war? Why do you think that is? I would love to know people's thoughts on that. Um, Rebecca, I hope you're keeping um, track of all the questions I've asked, hopefully, and maybe fielding some of the responses because I'd love to hear people's response. But I, I really want to know, why do you think he felt like a famine is better than war. Do you think a famine humbles people more? Would a famine be more of a compulsion of humble, of humility than war? Is that possibly what he's going for? Is that famine makes you worry about yourself and, and the hunger? And I'm thinking of stories from the Holocaust in which um, uh, many Holocaust survivors said at, at some point, all we could think about was food. Once you're that hungry, you can't think about anything else except food. And that, that extreme hunger sometimes just, just makes you so, just brings you so much down into the depths. 
And is that what Nephi is going for here, is that he knows that famine, hunger, can humble them more than just beating the tar out of each other. Then he notices that the famine is not just affecting the, right, the unrighteous Nephites, but it's also trickled over into the Lamanites. And how unfair is this? The Lamanites who are not being unrighteous are also being affected by this famine. And this verse almost made me start weeping because it made me think of us right now as we're going through the things we're going through. It's really easy for us to say, why are we suffering this when I haven't done anything wrong? I'm trying to do what's right. This isn't my fault. Um, I'm trying to wear a mask or I'm trying to social distance or whatever. I'm trying to do what's right. And this isn't my fault. And yet everybody is affected. And notice the language here. Thousands perished in the more wicked parts of the land. So people are perishing. In this case, God is kind of dividing them that the wicked are being more affected, but the Lamanites are being affected too. And it's just, it's immensely unfair, but it makes you think about how sometimes the wrath of God is just how the physical, biological, climatological aspects of living on this earth, the material and physical aspects of living mortality, means that the bad stuff is going to affect the good people. As we're seeing, the bad stuff sometimes affects the good people. If it, weren't, if, it weren't, if it were that the God was using bad stuff to only punish people, then you would have to think that only Florida has unrighteous people in America because they're the ones that get all the hurricanes, and that's completely ridiculous. So, or shall we say the whole Gulf Coast or whatever. So, it, it, just as a reminder that although... Mormon is ascribing all these actions to God's action. It's also a notion of recognizing that part of this is just living in a mortal realm and that we're all affected by bad stuff. Then it came to pass that the people saw that they were about to perish by famine. And they began to remember the Lord their God and they began to remember the words of Nephi. The people had repented and did humble themselves in sackcloth. He cried again unto the Lord. Oh, I read, this, I read these verses, and I'm like, this is us. This is us. This is us right now feeling like, when is this going to stop? When, when are we going to have suckered from all of this? And yet, notice what is happening. At the same time that we're going through this pandemic, is that we're having this experience of a continued or a renewed awakening of racism in America. They're happening at the same time. And you now have allies speaking up, the NBA and politicians and um, pop culture icons, and, and people are speaking up in defense of marginalized people. And that's happening at the same time as our little pestilence here. And I can't help but wonder if are we, because of the compulsion to be humble, through this pandemic, our hearts being open to helping the marginalized more. Is that what's happening? Because at the same time, we're also still fighting a lot. What's happening here? Are we seeing something very similar to what happened to the Nephites? Never as any, I mean, I haven't had any chapter and verses hit me so much as like a current event as these did. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but this is kind of one of the messages I want to leave you with is, yes, we're in our version of a famine slash change the word for pandemic. And yet is our compulsion to be humble, helping us to step up and speak for the marginalized more so.
Are we doing what God wants us to do as disciples of Christ? And some of us, including myself, are not doing it as well as we should. But the climate is there for all of us to help and to participate and to join in these voices. And then Nephi reminds God, he says, Lord, thou seest that they have repented because of the famine, the pestilence, and the destruction which has come upon them. And now, O Lord, wilt thou turn away thine anger and try again if they will serve thee? And if so, O Lord, thou canst bless them according to thy words which thou hast said. So he's begging the Lord. Okay, stop punishing them. They repented, I promise. I know that there are good hearts now. And so the Lord stops punishing them. And the people of Nephi begin to prosper again in the land and begin to build up their waste places and begin to multiply and spread even until they did cover the whole face of the land. And it came to pass that the 70th, 60th year did end in peace. By the way, this whole thing from famine to end of famine, four years, only four years. This whole this leap of ups and downs for these people, only four years. That's just a minuscule amount of time, if, considering even the things we go through in the past four years, the past eight years, you can put it in context. Of Do people come to... Do people repent that quickly? Do groups come to a recognition of their structural sins that quickly in four years? In this case, they did. But I can't help but wondering, because we know that the Gadiant robbers come back, this is my question. Nephi thinks that they've repented, and maybe on the surface a lot of them have, and they've given lip service, and they've said that they've repented, and they're showing that they repented, but did they fix their structural problems? Did they fix the group sins that were embedded underneath of this society? I don't think they did. Because this will allow the Gadiantans to come back. This will allow the same sins to return to these people. And so I want to make a distinction here between when you have a repentance that might seem like a superficial or temporary repentance, as opposed to a solid, more deep, deeply ingrained group repentance a structural repentance. And is that possible? And as much as I want to applaud Nephi for getting this amount of repentance from these people, I don't think that they managed the, the, the level of repentance that they needed, which was to literally fix the problems of inequity in their society. I don't think they did it. So that's where we get to the return of the Gadiant robbers. So Nephite dissenters, and by the way, you have these Nephite dissenters that left the Nephites and went and lived with the Lamanites and are trying to stir them up to anger. So that's happening. The Lamanites are starting to be infiltrated by people that are trying to pick fights. Oh, Lord, behold, this people repenteth, and they have swept away the band of Gadianton from amongst them, insomuch that they have become extinct. Nephi says to the Lord, the Gadiantans have become extinct, which means no more, they're done. And they have concealed their secret plans in the earth. They buried everything. Let thine anger be appeased in the destruction of those wicked men whom thou hast already destroyed. In other words, they're good. We've, we've, you've, you killed the bad guys. Let, let's let the punishment stop. We can stop the famine. And thus in time, yea, even in the space of not many years, of not many years, they became an exceedingly great band of robbers. The Gadiantans come back. And they did search out all the secret plans of Gadianton. What did they do? They went and dug up the plans that were buried back in 10, verses 10 and 11 in just a space of not many years. So were they actually extinct? No. Did they ever completely correct their structural problems that caused the divisions and pride to begin with? I don't think so. Meanwhile, among the righteous Nephites, 
what's going on. There are still some righteous Nephites that have believed he, that have believed Nephi. They came to pass in the 80 and 5th year that they did wax stronger and stronger in their pride and in their wickedness, and thus they were ripening against for destruction. So the Gadiantans who are coming back, you still have these righteous Nephites, but then they gradually start to be polluted by the decline of this society again and again. So what do we have? Our final chapter, I'm going to call it Mormon's Lament, even though it's technically Nephi's Lament, in which Mormon declares the nothingness of the children of men. This is a chapter that basically deals with what is the nature of humankind? Is humankind inherently evil and prone to destruction, prone to nothingness? Or is humankind inherently good that just needs reminders once in a while? Mormon's really grappling with this, and I think Nephi did as well. And speaking of Nephi, what happened to him? The next person we're going to talk about is Samuel the Lamanite. After Nephi disappeared in the spirit and went around converting people and then asked God to forgive the famine, poof, we don't hear from him again. Unless I'm missing something in some later chapters in Helaman. But again, I would love to hear in the comments, what happened to Nephi? Where is he? Mormon then calls people, calls the children of many, calls them false, unsteady, hardened, they're hardened, they forget, they trample, they're foolish, vain, evil, devilish, quick to iniquity, slow to do good, lifted up in pride, quick to boast, slow to remember, slow to walk. This is all in one chapter. Look at all these adjectives and verbs. That's how Nephi, and translated through Mormon, that's how they're feeling about this Nephite society at this point. Meanwhile, we're only about 23 years away from the coming of Christ. Remember that. We're, it's going to get worse. When the Lord doth, we learn, also Mormon reminds us, that when the Lord doth prosper his people and doing all things for the welfare and happiness of the people, then that is the time they do harden their hearts and do forget the Lord. Oh, how great is the nothingness of the children of men. Yea, even they are less than the dust of the earth. Then, again, you can chasten, you can give them death, you can inflict terror on them, you can cause them to be accursed forever, you can cut them off. Again, these are things that the Lord is telling Nephi that he can do. You can do all these things. And God could do all these things if he wished. God himself could do all of these things. But, guess what? I want to end on a negative note. There's hope. There's hope. The last three verses of our entire reading section today. For this cause that men might be saved, hath repentance been declared. Therefore, blessed are they who will repent and hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. For these are they that shall be saved. And may God grant in his gratefulness that men might be brought unto repentance and good works, that they might be restored unto grace for grace according to their works. All hope is not lost. Christ can save us through repentance. I'd like to end with um, some quotes that I found on how we cannot follow the example of the Nephites, but instead choose Zion, not Babylon. Think of Nephi as a Zion heart and mind trying to live in Babylon. Nephi is a Zion heart and mind trying to live in Babylon. What is Zion? And the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. From Elder Holland, may we give the God and Father of us all a helping hand with his staggering task of answering prayer, providing comfort, drying tears, and strengthening feeble knees. If we do that, we will be more like the true disciples of Christ we are meant to be. So, 
Elder Holland is reminding us that Christ has invited us to be involved in this work of building Zion by taking care of the marginalized and the poor. Staggering task of answering prayers, providing comfort, drying tears, and strengthening feeble needs. This is our task. Frankly, I don't do it very well. Um, these chapters reminded me in all the ways that I'm failing. It made me think a lot about us as a whole. It made me think of our entire community of members of the church, as well as Americans, as well as members of a global community. It made me think a lot about that and what's happening. It also reminded me of the ways that I fail. It also reminded me of things that we should seek for in good government. And I pulled this quote from Susie Kassam from her book, Rise Up and Salute the Sun. Choose a leader who will invest in building bridges, not walls. Books, not weapons. Morality, not corruption. Wisdom, not ignorance. Stability, not fear and terror. Peace, not chaos. Love, not hate. Convergence, not segregation. Tolerance, not discrimination. Fairness, not hypocrisy. Substance, not superficiality. Character, not immaturity. Transparency, not secrecy. Justice, not lawlessness. Preservation, not destruction. Truth, not lies. All of these values in this quote we find in the righteous Lamanites and the things that Nephi is calling people to do to follow Christ. And it is my hope and prayer that we can do these things. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Um, now I threw out a whole bunch of questions. Andre, you did draw lots of questions. And I hope we have, can we take a few minutes to talk about them? Um, yeah. One, one quick point, uh, it's been pointed out that uh, Nephi does reappear in Helaman 16, uh, where, where those who were converted by Samuel the Lamanite come to Nephi to be baptized. I, I think should that's, have read ahead. I think that's the last we hear of him, but I, he does appear there one more time. Um, I'd like, I'd like before, as we jump into questions and comments, I, I have two just general, general points. One is to um, congratulate or approve or, or say thank you to our, uh, our audience. Uh, this whole lesson uh, and discussion could be taken in a highly political way and uh, and and we as a group have have kept it um, in in what seems to be a divisive time have kept it um, civil and 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 delicately avoided um, particular political points of view that i I so much appreciate for this kind of a conversation. I know we can take away uh, from it a, a particular political points if we choose to, but for today, for this hour, we haven't. And I, uh, it's been a good, good understanding. Uh, another, the second kind of global uh, point I would make draws from one of the comments early on, which is, um, one one lesson we can take from these scriptures and from your discussion is that uh, 
social justice is important, that we need to work on these things. But another lesson is that once a society follows down the um, uh, lack of social justice, the, um, uh, the uh, secret combinations route, it's very, very difficult to pull it back. And in a sense, uh, the, the difficulty that Nephi and Samuel the Lamanite have is, tells us uh, maybe what should be done, but also how difficult it is. Thank, thank you, Christian. Uh, Rebecca, I, would, you, uh, would you like to pick, you up, pick up? I've sort yeah. of... Uh, <laughs> So, um, so, and I think that comes through as you were talking about with the way that we end with Nephi's or Mormon's lament, right? That we see um, first Nephi wanting to kind of move on and say, uh, we see that tendency toward impatience <laughs> and it's good enough. So they've repented, like, let's end this. Um, but then the big picture is they really didn't. We really haven't rooted out the fundamental problems. Um, so I think that just really brings home that, that kind of difficulty um, and, and the difficulty of, uh, of, of addressing that and kind of keeping the energy up uh, to do that. So you had asked about like, it, which is better, a, fa a famine or war? And we had lots of comments related to that. Um, People saying uh, famine is more reliable, all people are affected, uh, although also observing that it impacts people in a stratified way, uh, that it can actually highlight those fundamental inequalities and, and help us to see those if we will see them, uh, and that it also affects our most vulnerable and can, if we allow it to, move our hearts and compassion and open us up in ways that we might not, uh, if those are the people who are not especially being affected. I also really appreciated the comments about how with war, everybody sees their side as righteous, right? And they can blame somebody else. Whereas with something like famine, um, you know, this notion that it has kind of this, this unknown um, cause that can't be blamed on people, perhaps uh, comes from God. That's a perspective, right? Um, but it forces us more, I think uh, folks have pointed out, to turn inward and to, um, and to really kind of grapple with what's happening um, in, a, in, a, in a different way. Folks have also commented about how um, something like a famine gives us a chance to, to change and repent, whereas with war, it's more immediate and you don't have that kind of opportunity. So those are some thoughts that, that people had. I don't know if you want to respond to any of that. And I love oh. that you're getting us to think, um, and folks are, are commenting on how um, we love the direct approach that you're taking to likening the scriptures to our time and that thinking about the events of 2020 have really kind of unlocked some new ways of understanding these scriptures. I really appreciate um, the way 
whoever the commenters were that reminded me, I should have been better about this, how a famine marks or accentuates the already marginalized in our society. And that maybe Nephi asking for the famine is his way of really reminding them, this is how you have uh, created inequity or furthered inequity in your society. Um, just as we've seen with our pandemic, how those already on the margins who already struggle with work and daycare and lack of food, um, lack of access to outdoor spaces, those are the people that have struggled most or the elderly or people in assisted care facilities. So um, great reminder for me. And I'm sorry, I didn't make that point, but I'm grateful for you guys for making that point. So. Yeah, I also wanted to invite uh, both Denise and DJ who are doing prayers for us today, if they would like to unmute themselves and join the conversation as well. They've had some really great insights and thoughts as we've been uh, following along. Yeah, just one thing I was wondering out loud, because um, I really did appreciate the comments as well that, that marked how much um, already uh, marginalized groups suffer to a greater extent, right, from pestilence and, and famine. Just what does that mean to those of us, and we all have some sort of privilege, um, but I think that that aren't affect by, affected by these things, at least in in that way. I understand that several of us are affected, like, you know, very much emotionally. We spend a lot of time thinking, praying, um, supporting community members and family members, but speaking for myself, for one that hasn't been directly impacted with illness or hunger, I remind my children all the time, we don't know what it means to be hungry. <laughs> when they're complaining about when dinner's gonna be ready, I'm like, you do not know what hunger is, right? And, and I admit that I don't know that either. So I just wondered, you know, understanding that our, our life on this earth is, is all these experiences are meant to teach us and help us to grow, develop, learn to repent, et cetera. You know, what those of us that don't suffer to that extent, how do we learn and progress in that way, you know, where others are experiencing it directly physically? And, you know, what, how do we try to, what do we try to do spiritually, you know, to get there? I, you know, I don't know. It's just, a, it's just a thought. I don't really have much of an answer about that. It's just a, something that did come to my mind, though. I think Nephi offers an example of, oh, I'm sorry, Denise, you go ahead. I'm, I'm so sorry. Oh, no problem at all. For me, listening to uh, Dr. Gonzalez, I kind of feel the same way. I think of myself, I've been raised with a goodly parents. I don't know poverty, but I think we all know people that are poor. We've had occasion to, to, uh, to help them. We lived in the South. We've lived in the South most of our lives. And we've helped with uh, Katrina, the different hurricanes that have happened. And you see the gratefulness of people who, when you reach out to, to pull down that moldy siding, uh, to give some type of 72-hour uh, kit to them, to know that they're not alone, it strengthens you. Um, I had the occasion yesterday i've been kind of depressed a little bit not depressed but frustrated by what's going on in the world and one of our former ward members had lights on she live in louisiana and she's been cooking for three days and so the thought came to me hey let me send some money and she goes oh i was afraid to ask people and i said 
no problem. So I sent her something. I talked to her privately and I said, this has helped. She was so appreciative, but I was so grateful myself because I felt buoyed out. I felt that what I've had the opportunity to share with people has, has been something that is positive. My husband and I used to have, own a pharmacy and we'd have people that would come into our pharmacy. It was in a lower uh, middle-class kind of neighborhood. They would come in and we would, he would see people that didn't have the money for the copay, maybe a dollar or two. And he would waive it or we sponsor people and different kind of things. And I'm not talk, talk about just to boast. It's just that those of us who have the ability to help others, it is incumbent upon us to do so. That is how we understand. That's how the spirit can work through us. And, and I'm so grateful, Andrea, how you went through this. This is, I've been making notes in my scriptures over the years and I just added so many more because of the comments that were had. So that's my comment. Could I, could I add in a comment that I might have made myself, but, but we have a comment on the, on the chat, so I'll use that to point out that war also affects the marginalized and the poor disproportionately. It's a common observation. And, and it, may, it may be the thing we take from this is that the poor and marginalized, however you define marginalized, tend to be affected in every problem that comes up, uh, whether it's famine or pandemic or war. And uh, that, that would take us to uh, a, a, a kind of, however, Nephi didn't have a good choice. Maybe he made the best choice of what he had, but uh, in all events, it was going to lead to harm and damage that would cause people to uh, come to some kind of repentance, however effective that turned out to be. He was up against a really large um, obstacle, really. Um, Almost impossible task. So I love at the very um, beginning how you highlighted that, um, you know, he ends up on this tower on his way home. He has other plans. <laughs> and uh, rather than, and, and this is acknowledged later in the scriptures with the Lord saying, you know, you've, you've looked after others and not just kind of sought after your own um, comfort and gain. Um, but he's on his way home. And I think that's a great message for so many of us that uh, rather than just going home to our places of comfort and um, allowing ourselves to, to dwell there that we, uh, as Brian Stevenson talks about, we get proximate and we open ourselves and act in ways that, that we're inspired to do and that are, um, that are, that are open to us. Uh, Andrea, I, um, in the interest of time and everybody's uh, uh, participation, I'm, I'm going to wrap us quickly. Would you like the last word? Um, thank you. I might feel like I'm out of things to say. I was thinking about these chapters and I was thinking a lot about the divisiveness 
within the Nephites. And I was thinking about, um, I probably feel similarly to how Denise feels, where I'm frustrated that something like a pandemic should collectively bring our society to a humble place. And yet, instead, it's turning us again against each other again. It's just one more thing that's that's turned us against each other. And I've been thinking a lot about those the divisions in within the Nephite community. I mean, we're not even talking between Nephites and Lamanites. We're talking about the divisions within the Nephite community. And I don't. How do we create a Zion people when those divisions are deeply embedded within our communities? And I. And I don't know. I, I, I'm probably at much as much or more of a loss as probably some of you feel. Um, and I just pray every day that somehow, not just for our physical health, but for our spiritual health, that we can find a way to create Zion in spite of so much anger and so much hatred. Anyway, so that's my... I guess that's my final say is more of a more of a hope and a prayer. So thank you. May I say amen? And uh, and close with uh, some music. Go forth into the world in peace. Perfectly appropriate with John Rudder and the Cambridge Singers. The closing prayer by Denise Grayson. Uh, Denise is a member of the church since 1981. We've heard her today already. Since 1981, when missionaries knocked at her door, like most, she has served in various callings. One of her favorite was as a seminary teacher. She's a wife to Roger, a mom to four children, three sons-in-law, and ten grandchildren. Um, music and, and a closing prayer. Thank you. Our Father in heaven, as we end this wonderful discussion Help us that we may become a Zion-hearted people, that we may reach out to those who suffer, that we may mourn with them, that we may strengthen them. And by these opportunities for growth, we may develop into the people that would have us to be. Help those who suffer uh, from this pandemic at this time, those healthcare providers that provide the the need, the succor that uh, they emulate us, they follow the Savior's, Savior's way to go to those in need. Help those who are dealing with the vestiges of Hurricane Laura and help them to be strengthened and loved. Help each one of us as we go through the, what's going on in our country that we may soften our heart and reach out to others in word and in our deed. We love thee, Heavenly Father. We are so grateful for thy son's atonement for us. Help us that uh, we may live our lives in such a manner. And we say these things in the name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.